And I'm so glad that you're here today because I'm teaching on probably the passage of scripture that I'm most passionate about in the whole Bible. And so you can tell it's going to be good because we're only going through five verses. That's how you know. This is going to be really, really good. If we were going through one verse, you know, it'd be total dynamite. So five verses today, we're going to be in John chapter 15. We're in our message series on the life of Jesus, the time Jesus spent on the earth as a man teaching and performing miracles, but most importantly, preaching about what life is all about and who he is. And the life of Jesus is documented in four books that are found in the Bible. They're called the Gospels. And today we're gonna be in chapter 15 of the Gospel of John. It's the night that Jesus will be arrested the day before he will be crucified and die on the cross. He's just shared his last meal, the famous Last Supper, with his disciples, and they are now most likely walking together from the home where they ate the dinner down into the Kidron Valley in Jerusalem, over the creek at the bottom, up onto the hill on the other side toward the Garden of Gethsemane. During their meal and their walk, Jesus continues to share some of his most important teachings with his disciples. This is the final locker room talk before the big game between the coach and his players. Last week, we listened in as Jesus talked about the peace of God, a peace that holds strong and fast regardless of what may be going on in one's life. And we talked about what it means, what it looks like to let the peace of God rule in your heart. If you missed last week's message and you're struggling with fear or anxiety or worry, let me encourage you to listen or watch it on the website. This week, Jesus is going to share what I believe to be the single most important principle on how to live the Christian life effectively, how to live the abundant life. I believe this one principle is the difference between following Jesus being a burden or a blessing. And if you can follow this one principle, you will discover and experience the abundant life that Jesus promised, the life that's lived in him. In verse 15 of the previous chapter, chapter 14, Jesus told his disciples, if you love me, keep my commandments. And when we studied that verse a couple of weeks ago, we learned that in the original Greek, the verse actually reads like this, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. It wasn't a guilt trip laid by Jesus, but rather a principle that appears throughout the New Testament, namely that a genuine love for Jesus will result in evidence of that love in the life of a person. The Bible calls that evidence in a person's life fruit because the idea is just as fruit is the natural byproduct of a fruit tree, good works Good deeds are the natural byproduct of a heart that loves Jesus. And then Jesus spent the rest of chapter 14 telling his disciples how they're going to have the power to serve him and keep his commandments. His spirit, the Holy Spirit, is going to come and make a home in them. The same Holy Spirit who empowered the life of Jesus when he ministered on the earth The spirit with whom Jesus is one would come and live inside every believer and empower them to live for Jesus. That's the context of the teaching that Jesus is giving as we pick things up in chapter 15. The subject is good works. It's producing spiritual fruit, keeping the commandments of Jesus, producing evidence of your love for the Lord. Get this, the topic is not salvation. 
Jesus will make that clear in verse 3. If you look ahead, he will tell his disciples, you are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. This teaching that Jesus is going to give is not about salvation, but how to live the Christian life effectively, how to truly live for Jesus and produce spiritual fruit. Now, as Jesus and his disciples make their way toward the Garden of Gethsemane, they're going to walk past some vineyards on the hillsides of Jerusalem, and they're going to walk past the temple. And there, reflecting in the full moonlight of the Passover feast, either above the gate of the temple or the door of the temple, depending on which sources you read, was a golden vine, a golden vine. And the vine was one of the national symbols of Israel. For example, the prophet Isaiah said, the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. And Jesus is gonna teach his disciples a lesson using the grapevine as an illustration. So most likely gesturing toward the golden vine above the gate or door of the temple as they walked past it, Jesus said in verse one, underline this first phrase, I am the true vine. I am the true vine. And my father is the vine dresser. Now in verses one through eight, this is the metaphor that Jesus is gonna use. God the Father is the vine dresser, the one who tends to the vine. And the goal of the vine dresser is simple, to get the vine to produce as much fruit as possible. Jesus is the vine. The vine's job is to supply resources to the branches so that the branches can produce fruit. What the vine does is absorb things like nutrients and water from the soil and transport those resources to the branches of the vine so that they can produce fruit. Believers, you and I, are going to be the branches and our job is singular, to produce fruit. It's also gonna be helpful to know that in Israel at this time, it wasn't unusual for vines to be allowed to run across the ground and grow across the ground. You see, today we think of vineyards and we think of things like trellises or some sort of wooden structure so that they grow up. But at this time in Israel, they generally grew across the ground and maybe they would put some rocks underneath to prop them up a little bit. That's how they were grown in Israel at this time. Verse two, Jesus says, every branch, that's every believer, in me that does not bear fruit, he, the father, the vine dresser, takes away. Underline takes away. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Now at first reading, that seems pretty unsettling, right? You read it and it, it conjures up this image of a vine dresser coming up to the vine that's not fruitful with clippers in hand and saying, you produce no fruit. You're dead to me. And then preachers who latch onto that and say, and God will do the same to you if you don't meet his quota for the day of good deeds. So think about that. But as you read the whole Bible, the question is, is that who God is in all the pages of scripture? Is that how salvation works in all of the Bible? Does God save us and then say, but watch out. If you slip up for a season, for a week, or one really bad day, you're dead to me. If you're not productive, you're done. That's not who God is. That's not how salvation works. 
And remember, in the very next verse, in verse 3, after Jesus says this, Jesus is going to make it clear that he's not talking about salvation. So what is Jesus talking about? Well, if you look up the original Greek word for that phrase, takes away, you'll discover that it's the word airo, airo. And its primary meaning, I put it on your outlines, is to raise up, to elevate, or to lift up. You see, when a branch wasn't producing fruit on a vine in Israel at that time, the primary reason would be because the branch was not receiving enough sunlight. And so the vine dresser would do what he needed to do to elevate that branch, to get it out of the dirt that may have washed over it from the rain or the mud and clean it off and get it back into the sunlight. And the way that he would usually do that is by placing a rock underneath that branch to push it up toward the sunlight. So get the picture here. The branch that is not producing fruit, the vine dresser goes to it, he cleans it off, he lifts it up, and he places it on the rock. I know this is a tough metaphor, but you could probably get what I'm getting at with that. That's the picture Jesus is painting here. As you and I go through life in this fallen world, in our fallen fleshly bodies, we can end up covered in dirt. How many of you know we can end up buried in dirt. And when that happens, we stop being fruitful. And we're still saved, but we're not fruitful. We're just sort of hanging on for dear life. And in those times, God doesn't show up with a pair of shears and cut us off and say, you're done. No, he's working to lift us up. He's working to brush the dirt off and lift us back into the light, put us back on the rock He's not standing there getting ready to cut us off. He's working to lift us up. The Apostle Paul believed this and wrote to the church in Philippi to tell them that he was, it's on your outlines, confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. So make a note of this. When we're buried under the dirt of life, God is working to clean us off, to lift us up, and renew our strength. When we're buried under the dirt of life, God is working to clean us off, lift us up, and renew our strength. So then an obvious question, why does your Bible and mine say takes away? Why does it say that? This is a hugely important point that every believer needs to know. We hold that the Bible is the word of God. It's perfect, it's flawless, in its original form. That means in the form in which it was first recorded by the men that God gave it to. Our Bible has been through several translations. There's been nothing lost as far as core doctrine or core teaching goes, but every now and then there's a word that's mistranslated a little bit like this. The Bible wasn't translated into English during the first few centuries after Christ. The New Testament was first written in English in 1526, the Tyndale Bible. Those involved in the translation had a brilliant grasp of language and grammar. They were phenomenal students at translating Greek into English, but they didn't have a brilliant grasp of history and context. There is so much more that we know about the historical context of the Bible now thanks to archaeology that has taken place over the last 150 years. So when they were translating this portion of scripture, they came to this word, airo. 
in the Greek, and it had a couple of different meanings, two main meanings, takes away or lifts up. And they looked around them, and everywhere in the world that they looked at that time, vineyards were grown on trellises. And so they're looking at this, and they're going, this doesn't make any kind of sense to say that he lifts them up since they're already growing on trellises. So it must mean takes away. And they translate it that way, and that's how it ended up being takes away in your Bible, but it really should be lifts up. Then he goes on and he says, and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes, underline prunes, that it may bear, and then underline more fruit, more fruit. As I mentioned earlier, vineyards were grown on the ground at this time in history in Israel. And the branches would actually just grow on and on and on if they were left unchecked. Here's the thing. Those branches wouldn't necessarily all bear fruit. They might just be bare grapevine branches that just grow out and out and out. And here's why that's a problem. Because they're still soaking up resources from the rest of the vine, but they're not producing any fruit. So the vine dresser would cut and trim those parts of the vine that were never going to bear fruit, but were just sucking resources from the parts that were producing fruit. Here's the point here. In our lives, these are the things that consume our time, energy, money, talents, and passion, but yet don't produce any spiritual fruit in our lives. Now remember, Jesus says that pruning is what he does to those who are already producing fruit. So he's not talking here about cutting off a whole branch and throwing it away. He's talking about offshoots from a branch that aren't producing any fruit, but they're sucking the life out of the part of the branch that is producing fruit. This is why I'm so fond of saying that we should thank the Lord equally for open doors and closed doors in life because he leads through both. What this is, this is the work of God in our lives in keeping us focused on living for him and stopping us from getting distracted. If you've been following the Lord for a while, you've probably realized the question in life is not what could you do. There's a billion different things you could do. The question in life is what should you do? What is the Lord calling you to do? with your life? How is he calling you to live? And pruning is what happens in our lives when we begin to pursue things that the Lord hasn't called us to, things that aren't part of his plan for our lives. And the Lord has to step in and say, you're devoting a whole lot of resources to this thing and it's not producing any fruit in your life. And the Lord would say, I don't want you to waste your life. I don't want you to spend yourself on things that aren't going to matter in eternity. So I'm going to do some pruning here. I'm going to close some doors. I'm going to bring an end to some things so that all the resources that are in your life aren't going to something that is ultimately worthless. It's the kind and loving thing for the Lord to do in that situation. And the Lord has to do it because most of the time we won't do it the easy way. The Lord will say, hey, I don't want you doing that. And we'll say, well, what if I did instead? And that's when the Lord shows up and he says, well, I can't let you waste your life. I can't let you do that. Pruning's usually not fun, by the way. I've never really heard that message. The Lord is pruning my life right now and it's so fun. It's so good. 
But it's so necessary and so much better than arriving at the end of your life, standing before God, realizing that you spent your life on things that were worthless and asking the Lord, why didn't you do something? And God saying, well, it was what you wanted to do at the time. So I just let you run with it. So much better for the Lord to step in in his grace and do some pruning in our life. So you may be walking through life with Jesus and encounter some closed doors, some difficulties, some failures where you thought for sure there would be success. You may have a relationship change very suddenly and you might find yourself thinking, what in the world is going on? And the Lord is saying, if I hadn't closed that door, you would be wasting your life on something that's gonna bring you no benefit. So I did a little pruning. I know it hurts right now, but you're gonna look back and be so glad that I stepped in and did this. Always remember, always keep in mind that making us fruitful is not only what brings God the most glory, but it's what benefits us the most in eternity. Because the Bible says God is gonna bestow on us eternal rewards for our faithfulness to him. So one of the kindest things the Lord could do for you and I is help us to produce as much fruit as possible. And I guarantee when we arrive in his presence and he rewards us for the things that we did for him in this life, we're gonna say, Lord, thank you for everything you did to help me be fruitful. I wouldn't have been very fruitful if you hadn't kept me on track. Many of you will remember that Jesus told his disciples, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. Write this down. God works to prune our unfruitful pursuits so that we don't waste our lives, but rather store up treasures in heaven. So that we don't waste our lives, but rather store up treasures in heaven. It's the kindest thing he could do. And then verse three, Jesus says, you are already clean. Underline that word, already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Jesus, whom John called the word in chapter one of this very gospel, the logos in the original Greek, was the means of salvation for these disciples. These disciples, like us, weren't saved by producing fruit or doing good works. They were saved by Jesus, the one who said, I am the way, not good works are the way. As we said earlier, write this down now, Jesus is teaching about spiritual fruit, not salvation. He's teaching about spiritual fruit, not salvation. Now here's the key to everything. Here's the secret to having the power to be fruitful. Jesus says, you just need to underline all of verse four and verse five. Some of the most important verses in your Bible. Verse four, abide in me and I in you. Abide in me and I in you. John's gonna use that word abide around 13 times in the coming verses over and over and over again. It means to remain, to be continually present, to stay closely connected to Jesus right next to him. It's living a life where you're in the word because you want to know him. You confess your sins to him and take communion because you don't want anything to get in the way of your relationship with him. You pray and you talk to him when you're scared, when you're angry, when you're disappointed, whatever it is, you turn to him for help because he's your coping mechanism. You thank him throughout the day for the good things that take place in your life. You share your day with him as you're going through it. 
because you're abiding with him. You're staying connected to him. Last week we talked about how as believers we are in Christ. This week we're not talking about salvation. We're talking about spiritual fruit, good works. You can be saved but fail to abide in Jesus. They're different things. So Jesus says, abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. A branch is not what produces fruit. A branch of a fruit tree that's connected to a healthy fruit tree produces fruit. My wife would not think me a genius if I walked into the kitchen one day with the branch of an apple tree and said, babe, sometimes I amaze even myself. I cannot believe that no one has ever thought of this before. They're out there working in the sun like morons when they could have done what I've just done. I've brought this branch into our kitchen so that this apple season, we won't even have to go to the store to get apples. They're just going to grow right here because I've bought the branch inside. I'm amazing. And we all chuckle at that But the point Jesus is making is as ridiculous as I would be for thinking that, equally ridiculous is the man or woman who thinks they can do anything good without being connected to Jesus. He says you're just as crazy for thinking you can do anything good without being connected to Jesus. And we'll talk about that more in a moment. He goes on in verse five again, just underline the whole thing. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. Jesus has just said the most extraordinary thing. He says, if you'll stay in close relationship with me, if you'll just do that, you'll bear fruit. It'll just happen. So write this down and then we'll unpack it. Spiritual fruit, good works, is the natural result of abiding in, being connected to Jesus. Spiritual fruit is the natural result of abiding in Jesus. Listen, this is not just a sermon point. This is not just a fill in for your outline before we go on to the next one. Personally, I've shed a lot of tears over verse four and verse five in my life. A lot over the glory of what it is saying and over my repeated failures to actually apply what it's saying to my own life. My default setting is to forget and ignore these words of Jesus. Let me explain. My default setting is to read the Bible, which I love, and everything it says about living for Jesus and add those things to an ever-growing list in my mind and heart of things I need to do for Jesus because I love him and I want to follow him. That's my default way of thinking. It's a list of all the things that I need to try and do and be in order to be a good Christian, a good disciple. And I love Jesus. I love him so much. And so I want to do the things that are going to bless him. I want to live a life that's going to bring him glory. I really do. And so I try and I work at the list and I fail over and over and over and over again. I fail. I fail. 
And no matter how hard I work at it, I never seem to actually break through and reach the gear where I'm just cruising and following Jesus and spiritual fruit is just flying off me wherever I go. The Apostle Paul perfectly described how I feel in Romans 7, it's on your outlines, when he said, I don't really understand myself for I want to do what is right, but I don't do it. Instead, I do what I hate. I want to do what is good, but I don't. I don't want to do what is wrong, but I do it anyway. I shouldn't really be surprised because in the Old Testament of the Bible, God gives man the Ten Commandments and the law. And in doing that, God lays out everything that a man or woman would need to do perfectly in order to meet God's standard of good. And then the Bible records over a thousand years of man inevitably failing over and over and over again, often spectacularly, to keep God's laws and his commandments. Now get this. We know this. We know this. But we don't get this. We know this, but we don't get this. The reason Jesus came to the earth, the whole reason he lived a perfect life in a human body, the whole reason he died on the cross, the reason he rose again from the dead was because we can't do any of those things. That's the whole reason he came. That's why he had to do them for us in our place because we can't. And yet you and I go back over and over and over again to saying, let me give it a go, Lord. I've really studied your word thoroughly and I think I really understand now on a whole nother level what you want me to do and how you want me to live and I think my list is really scripturally accurate. Let me give it a go. We still actually think we could do it. We still actually think that we can be righteous with good theology and a determined spirit. We can't do it. But it doesn't stop me from trying over and over and over again. But Jesus did come and he did live the perfect life that we can't and he did die and rise again in our place. In John six, this is also on your outline, we read this interaction Jesus had. It says, then they said to him, what shall we do, underline we do, that we may work the works of God? That's the question we're looking at. How do I produce spiritual fruit? What shall we do? Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work, underline work of God. Here it is, this is what you need to do, that you, and then underline this, believe in him whom he sent. Jesus says it's not works, it's work, singular. It's one work. Here's what you need to do, believe in me. Therefore they said to him, what sign will you perform then that we may see it and believe you? What work will you do? Our fathers ate the manna in the desert. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. You see, they're talking about a time in Israel's history where God had supernaturally freed the people of Israel from slavery in Egypt. They don't have faith in God. They end up wandering in the wilderness. And while they're in the wilderness, they're complaining about not having enough food. So God provides this supernatural food called manna on the ground every morning. And the man that God uses to lead Israel in this time is a man named Moses. Moses is the one to whom God gives the Ten Commandments and the law. So to the Israelite, to the Jew, Moses is a picture of the law. 
So they're saying, well, what, what sign are you gonna do, you know? Through Moses, through the law, we were fed in the desert. Then Jesus said to them, most assuredly I say to you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. He's saying, guys, under Moses, under the law, you didn't get the true bread from heaven. And then he says, underline this, for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. He says, guys, let me tell you how you get the true bread from heaven. Let me tell you how you believe. Let me tell you how you do the one work that you need to do. God comes down from heaven and he gives it to you. He gives it to you. And they said to him, right reaction, Lord, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. Guys, you want to know what's better than the law? The bread from heaven. Jesus, come to me, he says. He says there's no list of good works you need to do. There's one work you need to do, only one. Believe in me and I'll give you what you need. You see, abiding in Jesus is just continuing to live the same way that you and I were saved. When you were saved, you understood there was nothing you could do in your own strength to make yourself good. You understood there was nothing you could do to make yourself clean and righteous before God. When you were saved, you understood your only hope was the goodness and kindness of Jesus. When you were saved, you understood that you needed Jesus to come into your life and start a relationship with you. All abiding in Jesus is, is continuing to live by those same beliefs. The same beliefs that led you to be saved in the first place. But instead, what we do is we get saved and then we say, now I can get down to the real work of understanding all the things I need to do in order to be good. Even though we only just got saved by understanding there was nothing we could do to be good. The Galatians were a church of people who were just like us and they did the same thing. We mentioned this last week. They started forming a list of do's and don'ts and passionately working at the list. So the Apostle Paul had to write to them and say, it's on your outlines, this only I want to learn from you. He's being facetious. He's saying, teach me because you guys are so brilliant. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing of faith? So were you saved, guys, because you figured out how to perfectly follow the law of God? Or were you saved by faith, believing in Jesus? Wh which one is it, guys? Are you so foolish? Having begun in the spirit, are you now being made perfect by the flesh? He's saying, are you really this stupid, guys? You were saved by faith in Jesus alone, but now you're going to make yourself perfect by your own good works? Really? It'd be funny if we didn't do the exact same thing over and over and over and over again. Here's why this text is both glorious and heartbreaking to me. Jesus is saying there's only one thing that we need to be pouring our spiritual energy into. One thing that we need to be striving for. One thing that we need to be pursuing and chasing with zeal. One thing that needs to be on our spiritual to-do list. One thing. Tear up the list and write a new one with one thing on it. Abide in Jesus. Abide in Jesus. If we will pour ourselves into a relationship with him, 
and worry about knowing him and loving him, Jesus says, he who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. That's not actually a promise. It's a factual statement. He's saying it's a law. More real and more strong than the law of gravity, Jesus says, this is the law. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. It happens. It's how it works. It's inevitable. You abide in me, Jesus says, the fruit will happen. And yet we're drawn to lists of things we should do and not do in order to be fruitful. We're drawn to blog posts that say, here are seven things you need to do or stop doing to achieve this. They even tell you when you're writing blog posts, you want to get more readers, do lists. People love lists. They don't want to read paragraphs. They want to read lists of stuff. We're drawn to books that list a number of things or ways to be a better Christian or a better spouse or this or that. Most Bible colleges and pastors will tell you that a good sermon is loaded with application, a list of steps you can do, three steps to this, five steps to that. Give the people what they want, action points. And so we read these blog posts, we read these Christian books, and we sit in sermons and we hear step one for a better marriage, serve your spouse ahead of yourself. And we we write in the fill in outline and we sit there and we chuckle like, hope the pastor's got more than this because I'll probably have that down by Tuesday. And we just need to slam on the brakes and say, are we delusional? Are we absolutely out of our minds? Like you're just gonna decide because a pastor told you, you're gonna decide now I'm gonna lay down my life and serve my spouse ahead of myself because I heard a good sermon point. He had three points that all started with the letter N and that, that was one of them. We're delusional because most of the time based on our actions and the way we eat this stuff up, get this, this is huge. We seem to believe that the only reason we're not more righteous and not doing more good works is solely because we haven't acquired the right information yet. That's what we're doing. We're saying the only reason I'm not a better husband, a better wife, is because I haven't heard the right action step yet. The only reason I'm not more patient, the only reason I don't have more faith is because I don't have the right information yet. And, And once I get it, I will achieve it perfectly. That's delusional. It's delusional. If I believe that, then I'm ignoring everything the Bible says in the Old Testament, which teaches us, by the way, perfectly, the issue is not a lack of information. The word of God was delivered from heaven, carved into stone tablets by the finger of God, spoken by the Lord to Moses, word for word. Here is the information of how to please God, laid out perfectly. Nobody even got close. The issue has never been a lack of information. Never. The whole world is bought into this idea that the only barrier to mankind being good is the right information. And if we just had it, then everything would be different. That approach was already tried and thoroughly documented in the Old Testament. It didn't work. The issue is a lack of the spirit, a lack of connection to Jesus. You know, the most fruitful people I've ever known weren't that way 
because they had a really great list of things to do and not to do. I've never once found myself saying, yeah, but you know, if I had so-and-so's list, I would be a much better Christian. I would be righteous like they are. What I have found is this. The most fruitful people I've ever known were completely in love with Jesus. They were completely in love with Jesus. Half the time, they couldn't even articulate why they were so fruitful. And I would ask them, like, what are your spiritual secrets? And half the time, they they couldn't even tell me. They just loved Jesus, and it just flowed out of their life. The problem is that no matter how much information we acquire and take in and write down, we're still trapped in these bodies, these earthen vessels that are sinful and love to sin. Our flesh, our earthly body, desires the exact opposite of the things of God. The exact opposite. That's why Paul lamented, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And then he answers his own question in the very next verse. I thank God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Jesus is the answer. Jesus is the the way. and He's the only way we can produce any type of spiritual fruit in our lives. He couldn't be clearer than when he said, without me, you can do nothing. Without me, you can do nothing. I was going to go on and, and do more verses today, but I wanted to just, I just wanted to leave it there as I was putting my final touches on this this morning because I really believe this is the single most important teaching that Jesus gives on living the Christian life. In conclusion, let me say a couple of things. Jesus says to you and I, take all that passion, all that energy, all of that zeal that you were pouring into trying to do good works and pour it into your relationship with me. You'll find yourself refreshed. You'll find yourself renewed instead of exhausted. You'll find yourself energized. And here's the most amazing part. You'll find yourself more fruitful than you've ever been before in your life. I'm so blessed and thankful that Jesus made it this simple and this liberating because the truth is I don't actually feel like I can do all the stuff that's in the Bible. But here's what I keep forgetting. Here's where I've gone wrong much of my life. And I keep defaulting back to this. The things Jesus says in his word about living the Christian life are not a list of things for me to do to try and be a good Christian. It's a description of what Jesus wants to do through me, through his spirit. And I spent so much of my life reading these things and saying, that's what I need to try and do. That's what I need to try and do. That's what I need to try and do. And you know what the result is? You feel burdened and awful about yourself all the time. Instead, we're supposed to be reading all these things in the word as promises. Jesus says, if you'll just abide in me, this is what I'm going to do in your life. This is what I'm going to do in your life. This is what I'm going to do in your life. You read the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians and we go, oh man, i got to focus on being loving and oh man, i got to focus on being joyful. I'll wear a bright shirt, It'll confuse some people. i got to focus on being at peace. i got to focus on being patient. got to try instead of the blessing of saying, oh man, that, that list doesn't look a whole lot like who I naturally am. But thank you, God. You invite me to abide in you. 
And what your word tells me is that as I do that, you are going to grow in me love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, and on and on and on. You understand how one is a burden that will weigh you down and exhaust you, and you will feel like a perpetual failure. The other is a reason to praise God and give thanks for what he's doing in your life. It's a completely different way to read the Bible and go, wow, this is what you're doing in me, God? This is amazing. Thank you. There's one work that we are to pursue, abiding in Jesus. That's the abundant life Jesus talked about. That's the the freedom Jesus talked about. It's a life spent abiding in him. And as you abide in him, he changes your desires. He changes your priorities. He changes the way you see the world, the way you see other people, the way you see yourself. But if you try and just create that change on your own, it's not going to work. It's not going to work. It hasn't worked for me when I've tried And the tragedy of not abiding in Jesus is that you're missing out on the abundant life. You're missing out on the joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control that could be growing in your life. If you're trying to stir up good works on your own strength, that's religion. And it's exhausting. Did you know that the wood from a vine is so useless It wasn't even permitted to be used as firewood for the burnt offerings that were offered in the temple. Some of us are are trying to serve the Lord in our own strength and we're miserable. And we're telling ourselves, well, it's just the price I have to pay. I'm laying my life on the altar for the Lord so that everyone can see I'm following Jesus no matter how miserable it makes me. What a testimony. And yet the Lord is saying, I didn't make you to burn up or or to burn out on the altar. I made you to bear fruit by abiding in me. That's it. Maybe you're feeling unfruitful and spiritually useless. Be encouraged this morning. God is working to lift you up and get you into the light. Don't take the approach of, I just got to pick myself back up and put my hands on the plow again and just try and work some more. Jesus is saying, no, put the, put the plow down. Come and abide in me. Come and spend some time with me. Come and know me. Come and love me. Come and walk with me. Come and enjoy me. And then all of a sudden you'll look down and you'll notice that the plow's been in your hand for a while and you've accomplished a whole lot of great work and you won't even realize that it's happened. Maybe you can feel that you're in a season of pruning in your life right now. Don't despise it. Embrace it. God is doing a work in your life to make you more like Jesus and to make you more fruitful. And you're going to benefit from that work that he's doing forever. Maybe you're here and you are abiding in Christ, but you're discouraged because it doesn't seem like the fruit is happening as fast as you feel it should. You know, when Jesus was preaching the parable of the four soils, he said this about the type of soil that represented the heart that receives him and takes in his word and truly follows after him. He said, but the ones that fell on the good ground are those who, having heard the word with a noble and good heart, keep the word and bear fruit with patience, with patience. I know we live in a Christian culture where people are constantly writing books and blog posts and posting memes about doing huge, amazing things for God. 
But the reality is that a life lived for God happens over time. It's living one spirit-filled, abiding in Jesus' day at a time. And the great productive Christian life is built by living one day after another, abiding in Christ. And then you reach the end of your life, and I promise you'll be amazed at the fruit that has been generated over the course of your life. If you're abiding in Christ, be patient. The Lord guarantees that the fruit is growing and is being produced. Even when it feels like it's not happening fast enough, just keep abiding in him. Lastly, again, if you're here and if there's an area of your life that you know needs to change, let me encourage you, do not pour your energy and effort into trying to change yourself. Pour it into your relationship with Jesus. One of my favorite pastors says, you know, when you walk in a dark room, you don't karate chop the darkness. You don't try and punch it in the face. You turn on the light. That's what you do. And so if there's a change that you're trying to generate within yourself, you're not the answer. You're the same one who created the problem in the first place. Jesus is the answer. Focus on your relationship with him. Become full of him, pursuing him, knowing him, walking with him, inviting him into your life by sharing your day with him over and over and over again. And you're going to find that the presence of Jesus, the light, is just going to drive out the darkness. It's going to happen. Abide in him. Abide in him. Abide in him. And understand that because we love the word of God, we are at such great risk of becoming people who just write long lists when we read the Bible and forget that the whole point of this thing is to know and love Jesus. That's it, to know and love Jesus. He's everything. He's the way. He's the point. He's how we began. He's how we continue. He's how we finish. He's everything. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? Jesus, thank you for the glorious and simple and beautiful and liberating truth of your word. And Lord, we are wrecked by your kindness to us. And um, Father, if we're honest, we grieve and we mourn as we repent of all the wasted time and energy that we have spent on the fruitless pursuit of trying to be good apart from you. The law has already been given. Man has already proved he can't keep it. And you have already sent your son Jesus to keep it for us. And in place of all that, you've asked us to simply love you with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And make knowing you our great pursuit our one good work, a good work that we can't even do except for the fact that you've put your Holy Spirit within us. So Jesus, help us to do this one thing well. Help us to love you well. Help us to be fruitful, Lord, that you might be glorified. Help us to welcome the pruning of your Holy Spirit in our life when you need to do it that we might produce even more fruit. And Jesus, help us to abide in you, 
to abide in you. Well, thanks for taking this time to listen and be in the Word of God with us. If you've never given your life to Jesus, then you need to go to our website, mynewhope.ca, right now. When you get there, you'll see a graphic on our homepage that says, The Gospel. Click on that and you'll be able to watch a short video where we share the best news you'll ever hear in your life. It's more important than whatever else you're doing right now. So stop whatever else you're doing, go to mynewhope.ca and click on the gospel. If God has blessed you through this message, we'd love to hear about it. Shoot us an email at info at mynewhope.ca and let us know how God has impacted your life through his word. If you're in the greater Vancouver area, I want to invite you personally to come and be a part of New Hope Church. We believe God is doing something real special as we grow together in our faith and love for Jesus, and we would love you to be a part of it. And finally, if you'd like to support the Bible teaching ministry of New Hope through financial giving, you can also do that through our website. Just go to mynewhope.ca slash give. Thanks again for listening. Thanks for being in the Word of God with us. And always remember, God is with you.